Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, my name is Matt. Um, I feel a little bit, I told Chris this this morning, I feel a little bit like I'm like uh, Chris Jr. or something uh, with the quad-folded piece of paper and the Bible. If you've ever been around a while, you notice that Chris uh, always has his sermon notes folded in fours uh, on two sheets of paper. Um, So yeah, my name is Matt. Uh, My wife and Elise and I uh, have been going here for about a year with our two little kids. I think there should be a picture of the family uh, up there, uh, Bo and Margaret. Um, so we've been going here since about January. We've actually had the, the opportunity to have a little bit bigger window into the, the life of City Church and even pre-City Church. Uh, my wife and I were going to a gym, uh, and the trainer that Elise's uh, classes, uh, that taught Elise's classes, one day she comes back from the gym and she says, hey, like Brian says uh, that there's this new couple that uh, is going to come to the gym, and we're going to be friends with them. Uh, because they're Christians. <laughs> it was just kind of this like expectation. They're Christians, you guys are going to be friends. Uh, well, uh, by God's grace, we actually did develop a friendship, and through that, we are here uh, now with you all uh, at City Church. Um, a little bit more about Elise and I. We love homes, um, so much so that we were kind of naive, early married couples, and while in grad school, decided, uh, I was in grad school, she was working her first job, we decided that we would buy a house that needed fully renovated um, and do all the work ourselves. <laughs> um, and uh, thankfully, God did bless that, but it was kind of a wild uh, process of several months. And my parents and her mom are here, and they could tell you that it was kind of crazy for a few months. Uh, and they would say that we were also probably a little naive in that process. Um, but on the idea of homes, we as a church are, like Chris said, um, in the process of uh, getting ready to enter what we hope is our more permanent home here in the city. Um, and as we think about the idea of a more permanent home, uh, this morning we're going to talk about the idea of remembrance. And to do that, we're going to take a look uh, in um, actually the Old Testament, where God finally brings his people, the Israelites, home, uh, to their more permanent home. So as we do that, uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll read from Joshua 4. Lord, thank you for Uh, this time this morning. Lord, I just pray over the words uh, that you have for us this morning. May you speak through me, uh, and may hearts be open uh, to what you have to say to us this morning, uh, both through me as well as Michelle and Caitlin. Uh, May we, yeah, may you uh, be here with us uh, as you promise you are. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to open up to Joshua 4. Uh, We're going to start with just the first three verses, and I'll go ahead and read those, um, and then we'll talk about what's happening here. Joshua 4, verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Well, what's going on here? If we were to look at the history of what's happened up to this point, um, we have the Israelites. They have spent 430 years in slavery, spent a whole generation's worth of time in the desert, waiting to enter the promised land. And in this passage we see here that they have finally entered the promised land, 
but not just kind of like passively, just kind of walked in. God said, no, I'm going to like take you in. Literally stops the flow of water for actually the second time in the generation, because the generation before, God took them to the Red Sea. So we have the second time that he stops the flow of water to allow them to walk across on dry land. But there's something unique that's actually happening in that process. There's two promises that God has fulfilled at the same time in this moment. You see, back in Genesis 12, God tells a man named Abram that he's going to make him into a great nation, and he uh, will give that nation, the offspring, a, a promised land, a land. So in this process, we see both of those promises coming together in Joshua 4. And as he does that, he asks Joshua to have the people do something. Pick up 12 river stones and put them somewhere. <laughs> kind of an odd thing, right? Like, what, why take 12 stones and just stick them somewhere? What is, what's the purpose? What, what's he doing that for? So let's actually read. Uh, we're going to skip a few verses and look at, start in verse 6. We'll read verse 6 and 7 and look at what God is doing and asking them uh, to do this. So it says that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So there's two things I want us to see in this section uh, about the stones. The first is that God wants them to be used to be remembered. He wants the process of these promises coming to fruition, the mighty acts that he's done, to be remembered. An idea in verse 6, we see it says that this may be a sign. And then in verse 7, it says this may be a memorial for the people of Israel forever. I think of it like this. Um, I'm a runner. I like to run. But if I'm going to run, I kind of need to know where I'm running. Later on in the New Testament, we see that several different times the process of walking out our faith is, is kind of correlated to a race. Let us run the race with perseverance that is marked out before us. So the way I look at this, kind of this idea of remembrance, that a sign, a memorial, it's part of the process of God putting down for his people signs for the route of faith, for the race of faith, both for them as well as future generations. The second thing we see is that God wants them to be shared. It isn't just for me personally, or it wasn't just for Joshua, it wasn't just for the 12, it was for all the people of Israel. It was to be shared and narrated, or shared and told. God wanted them to tell their children. I also think it's interesting that it says when, not if. It's like this idea that God assumes that these stones are set up in a way that when the children walk by, they're going to ask. Like, Dad, what, is, what are these stones doing here? There's an intention with the way that they're placed, that it would be assumed that it would be shared, but also told. And I think that's an important piece, that we don't just interact with it like a statue. We interact with it both in passively and actively in the process of seeing and telling um, the story of what God has done. So digging a little deeper, why would God ask when he moves in a big way to mark it, to put it as a memorial? I'm going to read this statement a couple times because I think it's, a, it's, it's not, our, not the focus of what I want us to leave today, but I think it is a good statement to hear. See, so what I think is he wants us to do it because he values and wants intentional acts of remembrance that convey his might, power, and faithfulness to his people so future generations can also share in what he has done. I'll read that one more time. He values and wants intentional acts of remembrance that convey his might, power, and faithfulness to his people so future generations can share in what he has done. 
You see here, as the Israelites are brought home, they are made a nation, God says put 12 stones up. It's the idea of a memorial, kind of like in today's world, almost a statue. But if we look other places in scripture, we see other ideas of remembrance. Um, if we were to look back in Exodus 12, God calls them to recognize the Passover and the first feast called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. That's a celebration, a ceremony. That's another way to remember what God has done. And I think there's a third way of simply retelling the story of significant people and the story of God's redemption of the world over history. And we see that in Hebrews 11, oftentimes called the Hall of Faith, where it's honestly just stories of faithful people in the life of God's story of redemption. But I'm going to go a little deeper, and this is what I hope you guys take home today from what I, um, what I say. I hope it's what God leaves you with from what I'm talking about. Because um, I think there's actually a deeper reason as to why God does this. It's because God knows we're prone to forget. So he actually calls us to remember. He knows we're prone to forget, so he calls us to remember. Um, I was talking to someone uh, a couple weeks ago about this. And uh, the idea came to mind, um, maybe even happened to you this morning. Uh, did you get introduced to someone for the first time? And then like two minutes later, you're like, oh shoot, I don't remember their name. <laughs> or like you're at work or you're at a party and you get introduced to someone. And then like later on, you need to get their attention. And you're like, mm. uh, <laughs> and you try anyway to like acknowledge them without saying their name because you don't remember it. Um, or I could just maybe make the statement married couples and you'd think of forgetfulness, right? Like spouses, anytime you ever forget uh, something that they told you to do, um, right? We are prone to forgetfulness. Um, and I think if we uh, actually look in scripture, we see, so we're in Joshua. God knew the Israelites were prone to forgetfulness. He asked them to do this. Do you know what the next book of the Bible is? It's Judges. Judges is literally a book about the Israelites forgetting God's goodness <laughs> repeatedly. Like 12 times they God rescues them, and then they decide, no, like he did that, but he must not be good enough, so I'm going to go do something else. And then he rescues them again, and then we see this repeat. God knew that the Israelites would forget, so he intentionally calls them to say, nope, right now, I've done this miracle for you, put something up, so at least when you walk by it, when you have forgotten, you remember. God knows we are prone to forgetfulness. As a parent of two little kids, um, Bo is four and a half, Margaret is two, um, I've been processing this idea of like, what does it look like for me to share God's faithfulness in my life or just his faithfulness to his people in a way that they remember and I, and I remember? Because if we repeat a story, we remember pretty well ourselves. So I'm going to tell you a story that hopefully um, I tell to them one day when they can remember. You see, there was a couple in England in the probably 1930s. Their names were uh, Charles and Gwen Fish, I think, or Tish, one of the two. My family could correct me. Charles and Gwen, uh, we'll go with Fish, that had a heart for the um, unbelievers. They had a heart for, for God to save uh, people. And they had a specific heart for their relatives in America. So they prayed and just asked, God, would you lead our relatives in America to faith? And through that prayer, uh, through the invitation of a friend, an eight to 10 year old girl goes to a tent revival uh, and is saved. And her life is radically changed to the point that her entire family has changed. And then that faith is extended to the next generation. But the faith didn't stop there, it's extended to the next generation, which is me. You see, that eight to 10 year old girl is my grandma. There should be a picture up there, yeah. Um, that's Marge, my grandma Marge. And one of the things that I've been processing is like, what does it look like for me to have something that isn't just retelling a story? So grandma Marge was known for her raisin bread. 
She always had it. It's awesome. I thought about, like, could I make enough to have it? And I was like, no, that's way too much work. Um, but she was known for her raisin bread. So for me, what it might look like to help my kids remember God's faithfulness in the life of my family might be to just remember the recipe and make it with my kids and then retell the story of his faithfulness as we're making it. For us as a church, we're about to enter a new home. But we're also in this space currently. And we've talked about, this is a phenomenal space, like a multi-million dollar place that God has provided to us. So what does it look like in the process of going home to not forget the process of where God took us through? I'm joking, like, my kind of thing is like, maybe we can get Chris to do a monologue of like Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet, like every year around this time. Um, <laughs> or uh, maybe it's simply putting a picture of Shakespeare somewhere that stands out that people ask, why does the church have a picture of Shakespeare in their building? And then we can repeat the story of God's faithfulness. Um, yeah, or maybe Chris dresses up as Shakespeare. Ever, you know. <laughs> um, but as we wrap up this morning, and you think about what remembrance looks like for you, what does it look like for you to not forget what God has done in your life or the lives of the people before you? See, I came to faith as a little kid, but there was a story that started much farther along before I came that I can retell. So it might not be in your life directly, but there is a story that God has worked out that you have the opportunity to remember and share. With distractions, with abundance, with blessing, or with hardship, we often forget failing to remember God's faithfulness. May we not be a church or a people that forget, because knowing that we are prone to forget, may we answer God's call and choose to intentionally remember. And that's what I'm going to leave us with. And I'm going to pray and Michelle can come up. God, um, may we not be a church or a people that forgets. May you help us to remember, um, and may we do it um, in the immediacy. As we remember and see you working, may we choose to put a sign down, mark a memorial of your faithfulness to us. I pray for Michelle and just ask that you would um, calm her nerves and uh, speak through her to us as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. Well, I'm a little bit disappointed this morning that my podium is gone. Um, the Romeo and Juliet set uh, offered some nice options for, for sharing, but um, I am very grateful, though, that we've got Christmas decorations up. Um, if we haven't met, my name's Michelle, and I've been coming uh, to City Church uh, over a year, just shy of when we started meeting. And uh, really glad for Christmas to be here in the Christmas season. So something you should know about me um, in the midst of the Christmas season is that I love Hallmark Christmas movies. And I know I hear the groans and I see the eye rolls. I know they're cheesy. I know they're completely predictable. Um, but there is just something fun and delightful about them. And so I will watch some true confessions here. I will watch dozens of them over the course of the Christmas season, um, and I will so deeply enjoy them. Um, but I have to say that, like, I will fully admit, and I will like stand on this, that the '90s were really the golden age of the romantic comedy. I mean, if you take a look, so these are some of my favorites. I mean, there is just some great film that came out of the '90s. I mean, You've Got Mail, While You Were Sleeping, or Top Notch for Me. Um, just a lot of great movies, and one of my favorites um, is Runaway Bride. Um, who's seen Runaway Bride? Let me engage the audience here. 
Oh, oh, wow, okay, okay, we got a mix. Um, so quick synopsis of Runaway Bride. Um, it is a story about Maggie, and Maggie has had not one, not two, she has had three failed attempts to get married. Um, she each time makes it to the wedding, she is walking down the aisle, she gets cold feet and she bolts, leaving grooms at the altar, and she earns herself the nickname Runaway Bride in her small town. So as the story unfolds, um, she, of course, meets the leading man, Ike, um, and they are just, of course, perfect for each other and all the struggle, but they finally get to the point that they're um, going to get married. And there's this scene in Runaway Bride that I've just been thinking a lot about and preparing for this morning. Um, so it's as they are approaching the wedding, and they're at the, they're at the church, they're getting ready for the ceremony, and a friend really sternly advises Ike to maintain eye contact, that, like, that is the key to this, like, being successful. And so Ike takes that to heart, and as Maggie's walking down the aisle um, to get married, she's doing great. They are like eyes locked, so focused on each other. It's one of those scenarios where like they're so focused on one another that everything around them like fades away. They don't notice anything else that's going on. So Maggie's doing great. She's walking down the aisle. She makes it further than she ever has made it before until her grandmother's camera flash makes Ike flinch, and he blinks. And in that moment, their connection has broken. And we watch on screen as Maggie's face just like floods with doubt. And she becomes so overwhelmed with fear and panic in that moment that she does what she does best. She turns around, she runs out of the church, she hops on a FedEx truck, and she rides out of town with Ike chasing after her. So I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking the same thing. This sounds exactly like a story in the Bible. For sure. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Um, and so uh, to see what I mean, uh, let's turn, we're going to turn to Matthew 14. And just for context of what is happening just prior to this passage, um, Jesus, they've had a, Jesus and the disciples have had a big day. Jesus has just finished uh, preaching to and miraculously feeding thousands of people. I mean, it has been a huge day. So we'll pick up in verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get in, he is being Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. So this is a wild scene, and Peter makes a pretty wild statement. He, like, they think it's a ghost, and he says, Jesus, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. I mean, he has just stated that he is willing to step out of this boat in the dark early morning hours in the middle of a lake. Like, that is no small thing. So Peter must have some idea by this point that being around Jesus makes impossible things possible. And Jesus takes him up on it, and he invites him to come. So I see this picture, the kind of the scene unfolding in my mind, like Maggie and Ike. So Peter is so focused on Jesus, he is eyes locked, 
And Jesus is their long-awaited Messiah. They have this deep and growing connection as friends. And Peter is just so focused on Jesus. And in this moment, they're so connected that everything else that's going on around them fades away. And Peter does something crazy. He steps out of a boat and he walks on the water. I mean, full stop for just a second. Like, that is nuts. He walked on top of the water. Like, that is crazy. That is not, that is not humanly possible. But this moment is not about Peter's ability. That's not what made it possible. Peter's connection to Jesus empowers him to do the impossible in this moment. So it's just an incredible moment. I mean, what a miracle. But then things change in verse 30. It says, when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out. So Peter was really eyes locked, focused and connected to Jesus. Um, And there's no indication here that anything of the circumstances around them has changed. But Peter starts looking around. He starts noticing his surroundings and the circumstances around him. And in that moment, I can imagine that he like, starts to realize, like, gosh, the wind is really blowing, isn't it? He likes kind of getting wet because the waves are splashing. And he looks down at his feet, and he sees that he is literally on top of the water. And I think I just imagine his logical brain catching up with what's happening and being like, this is insane. Like, why on earth am I standing outside of a boat right now? And in this moment, he is, his deep connection with Jesus is overshadowed by his fear and his doubt floods in, and he's overwhelmed. And so just as quickly as Peter had been willing to step out of a boat at Jesus' invitation, now he is sinking in dark, stormy waters. But I think this is where Peter's story and Maggie's story kind of depart, because where Maggie ran away when her fear flooded in, Peter actually moves toward Jesus at least metaphorically, because in this moment he's struggling to stay afloat, and all he can muster is to cry out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And so in this moment of Peter's panic, Jesus can respond a number of ways, and any of them would be justified, because he's Jesus. He could scold Peter at that moment, like, Peter, you just watched me feed all these thousands of people. You've been participating in the miraculous for months now. Like, why are you sinking? Or, you know, honestly, Jesus had the power. He could have just calmed the wind and the waves. Like, Peter was a fisherman. I expect he knew how to swim. If the, if the water had been calm, he could tread water. He could swim back to the boat and be fine. I'd expect that's probably true. But that's not how Jesus responds to Peter, because that is not who Jesus is. It says that Jesus immediately reached out his hand and rescued Peter. He rescues Peter the moment he asks for help. Because this moment where Peter is sinking is not about Peter's ability and it's not about the storm and the circumstances. It was and is always about their connection, the connection between Jesus and Peter. And just like Jesus does for Peter, he does the same for us. When we cry out, he is quick to reach out and to hold us and assure us that he's got us in his hands. And then it isn't until after Jesus secures Peter and they're reconnected that that's when Jesus presses him with a question. And we don't hear Peter's response, but I think it's really important for us to recognize that we don't have to be afraid of Jesus' questions. He does not ask questions to condemn us. He loves us. And he asks his questions to refine us, to take us deeper with him, to challenge us and encourage us to think and believe and act differently. Those are good things. He loves us. And it's He wants us to not be overwhelmed by the storms around us. He wants us to have such a connection because it's our connection with Jesus that empowers us to do the impossible, the same it was for Peter. And let's be very clear that he has called us to do impossible things. And that can be a lot of things. Impossible isn't just walking on water. It is also loving people who are very hard for us to love. 
That is impossible. It's impossible to see the sick miraculously healed, but it is also impossible for us to continue to believe that God is good and he is kind, even when we don't have the thing we long for the most. And it is impossible to see dead people come back to life, but it is also impossible for us to hold on to hope when we're grieving loss. It's impossible for us to see incredible revival in our city, but it is also impossible that we would be able to rest in a peace beyond our understanding when everything in the world screams fear and anxiety at us. All of these impossible things, both the spectacular that we want to see and also the mundane of the day-to-day, all of these impossible things are made possible in us and through us because of our connection to Jesus. We don't just need him to do the so-called, what we think of as the big things. We need him to do all things. So eventually Peter and Jesus head back to the boat, and it isn't until they get into the boat that scripture says God calms the wind. And I think the order of events here is worth noting uh, because God absolutely had the power to calm the wind the moment Peter started struggling. And he has the power to change our circumstances with a word. But he often desires to change us first. He absolutely can change our circumstances, and he might, and he may, and we will pray for that and ask for that. And that's good. He wants us to ask. But more than anything, he wants our hearts, he wants our focus, and he wants our surrender to his ways. The very God who spoke the universe into being wants relationship with us. And through that relationship, he will work all of our circumstances out for our good and for his glory. He might not remove the circumstances we're battling, but our connection to Jesus empowers us to overcome impossible circumstances. So I'd love to offer just a few practical ways that we can seek to connect with Jesus. The first is to ask God for help. Just like Peter crying out, when we cry out to the Lord for help, he is quick to answer. He wants to be in relationship with us. That is a, a prayer he longs to answer, and he will. The second is just to get to know Jesus as a friend. Spend time together, read his word, talk to him, listen for him. Relationship takes time. The third, like Matt talked about, is recalling God's faithfulness. There's unbelievable power in remembering. We can remember the ways that God has loved you, cared for you, provided for you. Recalling those things in the midst of the storm will help us keep our focus and our eyes on Jesus. And the last one I'll leave you with today is to spend time worshiping God. Worship is an incredibly powerful way to fix our focus back on Jesus. And I know that when the storm is raging, it feels very counterintuitive and oftentimes feels impossible for us to worship. But I will tell you that in our struggle, Satan longs to destroy us. But in our struggle, Jesus desires to refine us and grow us. And so when we choose to worship Jesus because he is always worthy of our worship, When we choose to worship him, it is our best weapon against the ways that Satan is trying to destroy us. Jesus has already won the victory on our behalf, and our worship helps us lean into that. So as I close, I think uh, Jesus offers an invitation for us here. Let's not spend all of our energy fighting back against our circumstances and spend all our energy just trying to stay afloat. Let's instead fight for our connection with Jesus. Let's go deeper with him, the one who makes impossible possible, and trust that he will empower us and walk with us through the midst of the storm. As Caitlin comes up to share next, let me just pray for us. 
Jesus, thank you um, for your goodness and your kindness to us, Lord, that you're, you are making impossible things possible. Um, Lord, as each of us faces our storms this week, we cry out to you, Lord, save us. We want your reassurance um, and your power to make it through and to overcome our circumstances. Um, so we ask that you would bless us with your, your goodness and your kindness um, and relationship with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thank you so much, Michelle. Um, my name is Caitlin Snyder. I am the Connections Director here at City Church. I joined our staff team at the end of the summer, and you guys have just welcomed me in so well. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Before I was the Connections Director here at City Church, I lived in Indianapolis for eight years, working at various small businesses and nonprofits. Before I did that, I was a student at Indiana University, where I changed my major a bunch of times. Sorry, mom and dad. I made a lot of friends, great friends, some of which are in this room today. And I was also introduced to Jesus and the grace that he provides for the very first time. Before I was a student at Indiana University, I was born and mostly raised here in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm the only one on our church staff that is a native Cincinnatian. <laughs> and like a lot of native Cincinnatians, I am a Procter & Gamble kid. Procter & Gamble put me through college. Again, thanks mom and dad. Um, and also, I grew up Catholic. So I was baptized and received my first communion at various Catholic parishes around the city of Cincinnati. Something that you may not know if you are not Catholic or not familiar with the tradition, is that Catholics believe that the bread and the wine really become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That somehow, some way throughout history, no matter where you are in the world, when the priest holds up the bread and the wine by the power of the Holy Spirit, it actually becomes the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Here at City Church, we're not Catholic. Sorry if you thought we were. Um, but we just, so we just consider, see the bread and the wine, the communion, cute little communion cup, as uh, a symbol of Jesus's bread, of Jesus's body and his blood. And that's important. It is the body sacrifice to bring us into relationship with God the Father. But before he could be a body broken for us on the cross. He was a baby born to us, a baby born in a body. God deemed it necessary from the very beginning of time to come down to earth from heaven where everything was perfect to earth where things kind of suck sometimes. And that is something really unique about the Christian faith that God would come to us. There's a fancy word in the Christian faith called incarnation. But I think that Jesus's best friend John says it a little bit better when he says, the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. That the word of God spoken, that same word that created the world, would put on skin like you and I and come to live among us. And that's really exciting. Jesus was a baby born in a manger. He likely cried at birth, 
And if he didn't cry at birth, he definitely cried on the eighth day when he was circumcised without modern medicine. (laughs) He grew up, went through puberty like any ordinary boy does, and he became a man, probably a man around 5'5", which is really good news for Chris. Um, All the while, he was eating, sleeping, sweating, and going to the bathroom. Jesus had a body just like you and just like I. And there were certainly times when his body limited him. Over the past year, I've learned to live in a body that is deeply limiting. This spring, I found myself just not wanting to get out of bed in the morning. It's not just because I wasn't a morning person. If I'm being honest with you, a lot of mornings, the only reason I got out of bed was because my sweet puppy was barking in his crate. And sweet Duke the Doodle does not let his needs go uncommunicated and unmet. I was irritable, I was angry, I was unmotivated. I cried at the drop of a hat. If this sounds a little bit like depression, you're right. Together with my doctor, close friends, and my parents, um, we got me some help pretty quickly. Um, A blogger that I follow once said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for he gave me Lexapro. And that has become true in my life. Um, But while we were diagnosing me with depression, um, hopefully just seasonal, but we'll see, Um, they also ran tests and found out that my thyroid wasn't doing what my thyroid's supposed to do. So I had hypothyroidism. Raise your hand if you know what a thyroid is actually supposed to do. Okay, I didn't, and I still kind of don't, but thanks to good medicine, uh, we were able to get my thyroid working the way that it should. Just needed a little bit of help. So we get my mental health back to where it should be, my thyroid health back to where it should be, and then... I entered into a prolonged eczema flare-up. If you don't know much about eczema, they call it the rash that itches. And at the worst time, over 90% of my body was covered with eczema. I was itchy, I didn't sleep well, Um, I was like tired to the bone. Um, Normally it just affects the skin, but I mean mine had like moved in. Um, And that was all the while I was selling a house, buying a house, leaving a job and wrapping up my life in Indianapolis and moving here to start a new life. Um, When I finally saw a doctor here in Cincinnati, he said I had one of the worst cases of eczema he's ever seen in his life. It's a lot for an allergist to say. Um, And so I, even as I'm talking to you today, I still don't know what we're gonna do with my eczema. Right now it's just being treated with topical creams. It's likely I'll end up traveling the injection route um, where they they deal with my body on a genetic level. I'm still working through that. So not a day goes by that I'm not reminded of the limitations of my body. And I know from being around this community for just a short period of time, that I'm not the only one whose body doesn't do what they want their body to do. My body reminds me of my humanity. This reminder, this experience of pain, it drives me to realize that things are not as they should be. There's a divine entanglement 
of the brokenness of my body and the brokenness of this world. The world is not as it should be. Because of that, we walk through cancer diagnoses, mental health struggles, migraines, insomnia, autoimmune problems, infertility, miscarriages, food allergies, chronic pain, and complications due to aging. And God entered in. He became like us to lead us back to himself. The author of Hebrews reminds us of the uniqueness of Jesus as our high priest and savior. He says, let me read right from my Bible. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who knows Am I saying that right? um, It was unable, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. So I do not like double negatives. I find them very confusing, as you can even say, see as I just read that. So let me reframe it for us. We have a God, a savior, a friend, a high priest who is able to empathize with us. In our weakness, we have a God who draws near to us And he doesn't just draw like really, really close. He can draw so near because he has been here and lived on this earth just like us. For me, that means when my eczema flares up or my depression impacts my days or when I'm at a party and I literally can eat nothing because I have so many food allergies, I I can receive the comfort of Jesus and be reminded that he knows He knows what it's like. He knows because he became like us to lead us back to himself. In his knowing what it's like, he reminds us that he cares. His compassion, his understanding, and his empathy, they comfort me. And he wants them to comfort you too. Because he knows what it's like. And maybe it's not in your body limitations. If so, I'm very, very jealous of you. Maybe it's difficult relationships. Maybe it's financial struggles. I know, Christmas is coming, isn't it? But in whatever it may be like, Jesus is able to empathize. He knows what it's like. He can offer us comfort because he's been here and he knows what it's like to walk around in a broken body. And so we, together, after being around lots of tables over the last week, we're going to go to the Lord's table together. We're going to receive the comfort that can only be offered through Jesus' body and the remembrance of that. If you didn't grab it when you walked in, Matt and Michelle, I think, are coming around with little communion cups Um, And this is simply just to remember afresh the invitation and the comfort that Jesus provides. Here at City Church, we call it the Lord's Table. We believe it's a regular commitment that Jesus' followers make to remember his death and also a renewal of our faith that joins us together. We believe that the Lord's Table is open to anyone who has called upon the name of Jesus to be saved. 
That means if you have not made the decision to follow Jesus, number one, I am so glad that you're here today. This just isn't for you yet, and that is okay. If you have questions about what it means to become a Christian, to receive the invitation that Jesus provides, to experience the comfort that he offers, I would love to talk with you more. So would Chris, so would Matt and Michelle. But it's just not for you today, and that's okay. No one's looking around, I promise. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to take the Lord's table together. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. We're thankful that in this season of Advent, we remember your body. We remember you born as a baby, as a human, a body that bled, and it bled for us. And we just pray, Lord, that wherever we are today, that we would receive your comfort through the Lord's table, through your word, through being here together, and through worship. And so, City Church, let me open my little container. Didn't do that ahead of time. Um, well, I'm going to tell you about it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks. Okay. The body of Christ broken for you. And the blood of Christ shed for you so that your sins may be forgiven.